everyone. Welcome to Coach Out Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. And here's what we've got lined up for you this week. Publicly, they've got to be seen to be in control, authoritative, gaining respect from people. But privately, on the inside, they know that, hang on a minute, I'm just, I'm just making the most that I can within this complex world that keeps changing on me because I have new parents, new players, players developing at different rates, new syllabus every now and then. You know, so on the inside, coaches have a really chaotic life. On the outside, they've got to present the stable front of assuredness and respect and I have all the answers because otherwise nobody will trust them. Yeah, because it's a fleeting glance. You're going through the session, you're, you're, you're managing everything, you're managing the complexity and then out of the corner of your eye, you see that person make that mistake and you've missed a load of other things that they yeah. made. And we've got the data as well that shows that coaches are not great at recalling what happens in sessions. Yeah. So this is where we've got to draw on maybe and this is where I think it's too much labor, maybe for one person. Yeah. And that's why I keep hinting here that maybe we've got to draw on the performance analysts here a little bit, or maybe we've got to draw on assistant coaches here. In this episode, we spoke to Colin Cronin around the complexities of theory and practice. Hey, Colin. Uh, cheers for joining us on the Coach Out podcast. Good to get you on. Thanks for having me, Lewis. Uh, very happy to have a chat. Uh, always keen to talk coaching and learn um, from yourself and make some sense of uh, coaching practice and theory. Really looking forward to it. Yeah, no, I'd be interested to like, so give a bit of context to people. Obviously, Colin was one of my first university lecturers, kind of sparked a lot of this stuff in me in terms of coaching practice and the theory behind it. So obviously, continuing from that column, just give us a little bit of background on you, where you started, where you are now. Uh, yeah, so before then, Lewis, so that was, um, uh, without giving too much away, that was maybe mid-noughties, uh, Burnley yeah, College, yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe early noughties, maybe it was a little bit older than we like to remember. <laughs> um, yeah, so at the time I was lecturing at Burnley College, I was coaching basketball and basketball was my sport. Uh, I played kind of between the ages of 12 and 18. Um, uh, I then um, moved from Ireland, from Cork in Ireland, uh, hotbed of sports, Gaelic football, hurling, uh, soccer slash football, um, and basketball, obviously. Uh, I moved from there to Newcastle, again, another big sports city. Uh, really enjoyed being up in the Northeast, did my degree in sport management there. And I also started coaching at the basketball club there, the Newcastle Eagles. Um, who've been incredibly successful uh, there. Um, I did a little bit of coaching there. Uh, moved to Burnley, um, which is where my then girlfriend, now wife, was from. Uh, so that was a good decision in the long term. We didn't know it was so short a time, but it was a good decision. It's worked out well, uh, for me at least. Um, and that's when I was coaching... Uh, schools, voluntary clubs, community, summer camps, did the Camp America thing. So done lots of that mass participation, community coaching. Uh, that can be difficult uh, in the UK to make pay into a full-time job. It was in the early noughties, it still is now. Uh, and that's maybe something we need to look at as to how, how valued those coaches are. Um, 
and I was also trying to develop, uh, you know, young athletes. So this would be under 14, under 16, under 18, trying to help them onto a pathway into academies or international league setups, potentially county teams and national league teams and national squads. Uh, so trying to do all those things, three or four or five different coaching roles, and then obviously to pay the bills, teaching PE at Burnley College, teaching degrees at Burnley College. Uh, that's when we came uh, across you. You're one of our uh, our first higher education students, I think, but also one of our best, Lewis. Uh, so yeah, you yeah. Know, credit to you. Um, and from there, proceeded to really enjoy higher education, teaching, working with smaller numbers of students, getting more into my subject, which is coaching. And when you're teaching at degree level, you can, you know, bring in some research that you've done or you've read, you can share it with the students, you get more back from them, I, I find in terms of critical thinking, we certainly did from you, you gave us loads of thoughts, lots of discussions, lots of arguments. So I really enjoyed that. And then from there, I progressed on kind of a university pathway, University of Cumbria, uh, and now at Liverpool John Moores and I have been for nearly six years where I'm a senior lecturer in P and sports coaching uh, so that's a whistle stop tour um, I, I don't know if that's going to be confusing for the listeners or for yourself no that's good because again like it's, there's a couple of bits in there that I didn't really know about your role Colin which is interesting but in terms of like going down the education route I can imagine partly like you said to pay the bills but to then develop that passion for you who who or what's been your biggest influence around the education side and the theory side more, more than probably the coaching yeah it, it's a really interesting question because sometimes we have this like um education practice divide uh, and I, I don't really see it to be honest lewis um yeah. you know pretty much everybody i know who's involved in coaching research has or is coaching so even now i coach my daughters under under nines football team um you know um and pretty much everybody i know who's researching coaching has a practice background um and then lots of practitioners out there like yourself uh, and like your listeners really you know yeah. they're interested as well they're interested in research they're interested in insights and new ideas so even though i've gone down an education route let's say uh, for employment and for my career, my profession, actually, I've always still had, you know, kind of one hand in the in, in coaching camps. So I was still coaching in the evenings and the weekends and out on a Tuesday night and going to games and stuff like that. And I think most people are there. That's a terrible answer to your question, by the way. Um, but I just wanted to bring that up there. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah we, we, I have a foot in both camps probably still. I think most people do. Um, I don't know if you agree with that before I, I come back to your question. Um, I, like you said, I think there's a bit of a, a stigma around like if you're if you've been published or whatever, then you're seen as very theoretical based, and vice versa. If you're on the grass every day, I still think again you would lean more towards the theoretical side in terms of like you probably spend more time on that, which again then I still think lends its hands to kind of the argument around do you actually understand the the day in day out the practicalities of what it looks like. But even, I think it. I think it stretches across other um, disciplines as well. So, I'd say coaches, and again, I might be being a bit controversial. I'd say coaches are pretty good at it in terms of balancing the two. Whereas I go down, if you go to go down a psychology or a sports science route, 
I'd feel like they're very more heavily towards probably the theoretical side and the actual practicalities of how you you implement it become very different when you get someone a sports scientist working full time in your environment. Suddenly, they they almost there's a lot of times they almost treat players or individuals as like a, a number around. If I do this, this, and this, and they'll get better. But what if they don't have confidence in lifting that weight or running a hundred meters in that time? Have you done that kind of stuff? And I feel that that's the part that. Again, I've not been down that route. I, ne- I nearly went down that route when I met you that day at, at university where it was coaching or sports science. I definitely chose the right one. But the sports science route, I feel like, again, from my understanding of the courses, yes, you go on your placements and stuff, but there's not really a bit on the course, which is this is what the the world looks like in terms of you to go into a professional sport and how to deal with individuals. Because I think a lot of the sports science research goes down the individual route rather than how do we develop a team yeah I mean first of all I think you know coaches game of sports science lost that day um, yeah. so I was very happy to get you over to the coaching <laughs> side that day uh, when we when we were chatting kind of at Burnley College um, second thing I suppose the other thing you've got me thinking about there which does come back to your original question is, is, is kind of who's been my major influences from kind of a research point of view yeah. uh, and um and when I think about them, there's, you know, there's a few researcher names that I, I'll put out here and, you know, the listeners might not know them. Um, um, but, you know, you, you can, you know, go on Google or Google Scholar and you can type in these names and you'll find lots of coaching articles, and lots of coaching books. And, and often these are available open access. And yeah. um, so, you know, so the first one for me really was... Um, you know, Professor Kathleen Armour, uh, who I met when I was doing my master's at um, Loughborough University. Yeah. And it fits in with your second point there. The reason why I connected with, with Kathy um, was actually through her work. Um, so a few years ago, she, she wrote a book called Sports Coaching Cultures. Uh, it's still one of my favorite books. Yeah. Um, and, and the reason why I like it is they've done interviews with 10 coaches and it gets to what you're saying about the practicalities the messiness of practice and the everyday activity of coaching and and that book really you know these coaches um you know graham taylor was one so i'm thinking uh, steve harrison um were the two football ones bob dwyer from um you know uh, an australian uh, in rugby league uh, ian mcgeekin rugby football union peter stanley's an athletics coach um, so these coaches were really successful in their sports, um, but Kathy and Robin Jones and Paul Potrick, who she wrote the book with, they did a really good job of bringing their everyday activity to life. Right. And uh, and when I read that, it kind of blew my mind. I didn't realize that like you know research could be about coaches' lives and their everyday practice. A bit like what you were saying, I thought it was all quants. I thought it was all numbers and graphs, whereas actually, uh, you know, I was getting to read about, you know, uh, Graham Taylor's backstory and how that influenced his coaching. And I was getting to, to, to read about how Bob, Bob Dwyer knits a team together and makes it cohesive and gives them a higher purpose to build into. Yeah. And these were like practical coaches' words. And, and up until that point, I was fascinated, probably a bit like you, uh, with coaches' biographies. Yeah. 
you know so like i was the easiest you know christmas or birthday present to buy you just get me the lotus latest coach's biography yeah. every christmas that's Cullum's present boxed off um you know so like um probably some of my favorites would be clive woodward's biography i, I think is really useful um andre agassi's tennis biography is really powerful um so i would read these biographies and then when i came across kathy's research what i saw was she was basically doing the biography basically of these coaches but then on the second half of the chapter would do kind of an academic critique of the practice um and what the practice could how the practice could inform theory and how the theory could inform practice and i realized hang on a minute you know this is great research because the stories were hooking me into the everyday lives of coaches and i could relate to them much lower level but i could relate to them i could relate to you know how you feel after you lose a game on a wednesday night and you know i was in a bad mood for you know basically till the next game came around you know and here was other coaches having the same feelings so this type of stuff was inside the stories and i was connecting with these stories but then she was giving me theory and uh, evidence to help me make sense of those stories and see insights that I wouldn't have, have mattered. And that really was the catalyst for my research then was, right, okay, Kathy's work around coaches, their lives, how they learned, how they practice, their challenges, and then trying to use theory to help understand that. And I thought, great, that's what I want to do. I want to understand about coaches, their lives, and then how can we improve them? Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I think we went around the houses a little bit, but that's probably been the major influence on my um, uh, on my research and the decision to go down and study coaches in a qualitative story kind of way. And then how do you kind of, because again, I know you still get to coach now and again um, outside of work, how does that influence your coaching? Because again, you're not in the kind of day-to-day of, plan do review as a coach plan do review you're again you've given your time up to probably do it most of the time whether that was basketball or the past or the grassroots how yeah. do you make bits and kind of work with it yeah i, I suppose uh, if we went back about maybe oh i probably stopped coaching it only seems like yesterday really but it's probably been about eight, eight um maybe well maybe maybe eight years now or six years or something like that, where I stopped coaching basketball. Yeah. Uh, when I was coaching basketball, you know, um, the research would definitely inform. So if I was coaching young children, I had access to things on fundamental movement skills and things like that. So I would embed some of that in to our everyday practice. Um, but really, I think, you know, I would embed some sports psychology stuff in as well. So, you know, we would... Um, we would do things on team cohesion or, or, or things like that. Um, so I would be reading some of this stuff and then I would be trying to do it on a Thursday night or a Tuesday night. Motivational climate is one that influenced me a lot. For example, um, this idea of um, uh, developing a mastery climate. So the idea that the challenge is against yourself and that it's okay to fail, but we're looking to to... Uh, improve we're looking to into work out why um that idea of uh, you know uh, athletes taking ownership and evaluating their own performance and then trying to improve that better so these are things that i would read about and i would try to uh, embed probably uh, in terms of my own research influencing my own coaching i'm very much focused around coach athlete relationships and the needs of participants 
Um, and then trying to understand those needs as a, as a basis to then say, okay, let's use that as a basis to develop session plans, for instance. Um, so instead of working back, uh, let's say, from the needs from, of a sport or a prepare, preferred coaching you know, philosophy or, or, or a preferred coaching um, style, let's have a look at the needs of the participants as a starting point. Um, so that's probably how, you know, I would like to think it influenced my coaching. Um, the caveat I would say there, and again, I think a lot of coaches might appreciate hearing this, is, um, you know, when you're coaching, you've got multiple factors at play. So we've got the, you know, the ambitions of the coach and their biography and their background and their thoughts. We've got the needs of the participants and in a team sport that could be, you know, 25 players, which all might have different needs, different positions, different backgrounds. Uh, you might have parents in a grassroots context and some of them want to win on a Sunday and some of them want to see little Joey just have a bit of fun. Some of them just want to drop little Jane off for two hours and have a break. Mm -hmm. um, so they've got different perspectives. You've got people around the club, which might be a chairman, but it might be a performance director or, a head, or an academy manager. They've got ambitions. You've got, uh, you know, the opposition that you're up against. So we kind of have all of these competing interests when we're coaching. And that's one of the things that makes coaching really difficult. So when we think about, okay, what piece of research is going to help me navigate all of that? I don't think there is a single one. Um, I think what there is, is research which can give us ideas and then we have to kind of, you know, what Robin Jones, again, one of these key researchers, what Robin Jones would talk about is orchestrating. So how, you know, how do you navigate uh, the needs of the parents, the academy the manager, the players, the opposition, your own needs, because you need to win a few games because you want to get promoted or you want to be seen as successful. How do you orchestrate all of them so that they're all getting what they need at the same time? Um, and that can be a little bit complex, um, but that orchestrator metaphor I find handy. So it's almost like the coach is the conductor if that makes sense. So you're trying to help them work with certain players on certain things while other players need help with other things. So you've got like different sections of an orchestrator and a coach is trying to get these to work on these and these to work on these. We're trying to meet the needs of these people, which might be parents or academy managers. And basically you're trying to keep things relatively uh, stable, uh, everybody relatively on track, everybody developing bit by bit. Uh, but you're never in fully control of anything. At any minute, a parent might come out of the blue and say something, or an academy manager might change, or an opposition might throw a different tactic at you. So you're never really fully in control, but you're trying to manage them. I don't know if any of that makes sense, Lewis. It might be a bit deep. Um, no, like, again, probably, abstract. Coming from, probably coming from kind of my background in terms of I've probably been in it and living it at different clubs for 10, 12 years. Again, I've always been playing around with this. Like, you go in every season, it's like, what's the syllabus for the season? What's this? And like, the first thing you said around, what's the needs of the players? Because again, I feel like, again, I go to football. Like, our syllabus is in academies because of the triple P is very much. We're working on this for six weeks, then we're working on this for six weeks, then we're working on this for six weeks. Do we lose? potential quality individuals within that system 
because we're working on, like you said, a, a team principle rather than, do you know what, is the skill of the coach. I've got 20 players that all need different things. Can I not build a session for that? Or over time, I can build a session for six today, another six tomorrow. And it's almost like a continuous thing, whereas rather than going like a school curriculum, they've got a, by the end of year seven, they've got to know this. By the end of year eight, they've got to know this. If they're not, then the cluster's behind. Or if they're doing algebra in year five, the cluster's ahead. Uh, How do we work along the spectrum? As And that's the skill of it, isn't it? And I, well, I, I think that's absolutely right. That's a brilliant example of what I was struggling to say <laughs> in, in concrete terms. Thanks there. It, it's that idea of, right, I come into an academy and I've, I've been given this syllabus. Um, but actually, that's not the only thing that's going on. I've got players in front of me that might have different needs. Maybe there's X player there that has a need. I've got an academy manager that might have a preferred style of player or a first team manager that might change halfway through and they want to see certain things. So when they're about, I've got to meet that need and the syllabus may be slightly less important because I've got to you know, show them that I can do what they need. Yeah. Then I've got a player who needs and then I might have some parents uh, you know, as well, who might have eat needs, and depending on your academy and how they deal with parents, that might not impact the, co- the coach, but in some cases it, it might do. Um, and I might have some assistant coaches who've got thoughts and ideas as well. And so, what we're thinking is, how does the coach orchestrate that to meet the syllabus, but also to maybe tweak the syllabus to meet the needs of the players, but also when the academy manager's about to meet their expectations because I want to be seen to be doing a good job because I don't want to lose my job and then when a new first team coach comes in and the style of play has changed and they want to come through well how do I tweak it again so the coach is caught is never fully in control of what's what's going on but is constantly having to adapt Um, and some of the ways we might do that is around like micro dosing kind of almost this idea of right I've got a whole session here, but I'm going to do five minutes on X because I think our players need a bit of X and our players have told me they need it. It's not in the syllabus, but I'm going to build in five minutes here and five minutes there and five minutes there. And you know what? Over a month then, I've built in an hour on X. Um, So, and then if the academy manager comes down and sees me doing X and he's thinking, well, where's that on the syllabus? I'm going to have to be able to navigate that. So do I need to go in and preempt him? Do I need to prime him and say, listen, every now and then we're going to just chuck this in, but don't worry, we're still doing mainly this. So how do I navigate the social relationship so that when he or she walks past, um, they're you know they're not cutting the legs from under me they're appreciating what we're coming from um so that idea of the coach being able to orchestrate right how do i manage up so i can meet the needs of the participants how do i manage the syllabus so i can meet the needs of participants uh, and even the needs of participants i've got you know two star players who are forwards and one star player who's a midfielder how do i tweak the session so they're both getting what they need um so that idea that actually this is pretty complex and it's chaotic and it's never fully within the control of the coach. They might seem in control because they've got the tracksuit on and they're big and they're loud and they're blowing the whistle and they're telling everybody what to do. But really, we're managing this complexity um, keeping things afloat, a bit like the, orca- uh, the conductor in the orchestra, yeah. for instance. Well, I think that's a big thing that's not kind of developed around whether it's, co- I'm not saying coaching calls, but in terms of, coach development, whether that is on a course or on CPD events, it's like, how do you develop 
four or five moving parts in a session and then how do your staff manage that and it doesn't just have to be you you almost have like staff roles and I know at the previous club we did a big thing around we had 12 to 14 different staff roles in a session and it was like how do we pick up how do we pick up that because again going back to the syllabus thing I was thinking when we're talking about the individual needs of a player we're there's a syllabus in place saying player X as a midfielder has got to be this but that kid might be 11 years old so in 11 years in another 11 years when they're playing first team football what does that midfielder look like because we're starting to see the game change and again it's the same in every sport like I love basketball I know you, you like your basketball but I look at basketball and go when Steph Curry was hitting three pointers at 10, 11 years old people might have been saying to him well, what are you doing that for? Because everyone just goes to the basket and lays up and everyone's strong and powerful. As he's got that good at something. So someone's giving him the rope somewhere to go keep developing this because this could be something that changes the game. Yeah. This this idea that... I mean, one, the idea of super strengths. Yeah. The idea that we make your strengths so good that the opposition don't even think about your weakness because they're just worried about your strength. Um. And then two, this idea that the game is constantly changing. And again, I I agree with you completely on this, but I'm not sure, you know, everybody's got their head around this. You know, people will talk to me about, oh, this is the game, but the game doesn't stay the same. So you give me an example from basketball where Steph Curry has changed the game, you know, in effect, his skill set allows him and his team to play in a way that other people didn't think was possible. And now other teams are trying to mimic that. Yeah, but we could give we could give football examples. You know, goalkeepers playing out from the back. You know, yeah. fifteen twenty years ago. You know, if you were if you were following the syllabus for a goalkeeper, you know, was was spraying thirty yard passes or or was playing in the box. You know, was that on the syllabus for them? I'm not sure it was, but now it is. So the game is constantly developing. Uh, and again, I think that is another example of how. We think coaches are in control, and coach, uh, but actually coaches don't even know what game we're preparing players for. We can't possibly know because, as you said, in 10 years' time, the game will have changed. Um, so what we're trying to do is trying to work with people and navigate through this uncertainty and help them, um, you know, because one, we don't know what the game will be in 10 years' time, but two, we don't know what those people will be in 10 years' time. So he's a midfielder now, but might be a centre-half in, in, in five years' time or six years' time, you know? Uh, and we don't know what manager they're going to have and what style of play they're going to want. So we have to work with people to prepare them for challenges that we think will come. But we're not certain. Um, and kind of being vulnerable and admitting that saying, actually, you know what, I'm not in control of everything. I don't exactly know what's going to happen in your career. Uh, you know, that's really tough for a coach to admit publicly because publicly they've got to be seen to be in control, authoritative, gaining respect from people. But privately on the inside, they know that, hang on a minute, I'm just, I'm just making the most that I can within this complex world that keeps changing on me because I have new parents, new players, players developing at different rates, new syllabus every now and then, you know. So on the inside, coaches have a really chaotic life. On the outside, they've got to present the stable front of assuredness and respect, and I have all the answers, because otherwise nobody will trust them. 
So yeah. they've got to put on this front, but behind the scenes, you know, there's a lot of chaos going on. Um, and it's difficult for maybe coaches to admit that. So maybe, maybe I'm more likely to admit that because, as I said, my career's in academia now. So my yeah. job's not on the line for me to come out and admit that. But I think we have research that shows that, that on the inside, coaches have got an awful lot going on. On the outside, they're putting on a front of authoritarian control and calmness at times. So what does the syllabus look like or the plan? Because I think I'm, that's what's kind of going around in my head now, Colin, is like we have these structures in place or whatever, but what, what should it look like or what should we kind of gear it more towards? And I know you'll throw out, you'll probably throw out player-centred, athlete-centred approach, which, again, that's kind of the buzz thing now. But what does that look like? Because, again, you can go down athlete-centred approach, we'll go, like, we'll just structure it this way for them. How do we become more flexible and kind of instinctive as coaches to actually go with what's kind of happening? Yeah, I, I think, um, I mean, the, I think there's a few things going through my head then. The first one is to say, I, I'm not going to tell you what, what <laughs> you should be doing next week. Yeah? Uh, because one, you know way more about your players, about your sport and about practical coaching than I do. Um, but I think if we're talking about this idea of a, of a, a coaching which involves some element of athletes' needs. Now, it involves more than that, as I said. You might have a syllabus. You might have an academy manager whose needs you've got to meet as well. And expect, you have your own previous experiences and your own knowledge about where these players need to go and what will help get them there as well. So athletes' needs are a part of your syllabus, but they're not the only thing in your syllabus. Uh, okay. Um, and I, so I think the question then would become is how do you identify athletes needs um, and there's different ways you can do that so with my academic head on I would say go read some research around the physiological requirements of under 14 footballers and it'll tell you how many sprints they need to be able to do to be classed so there's some yeah. research that we can do on that as well okay yeah. um, I would say, you know, use your own professional knowledge around the tech tack that, you know, under 14 footballers that need to do. Um, but the two that I would think about really doing and uh, that I'm not sure get played up enough, apart from the research and apart from your own experience, is observing and listening to the athletes. Um, so if we take observing first, Lewis, my, my first one would be like, you know, coach comes in, you know, first few sessions, you need to do ABC, great, no problem. Within those sessions, ABC might be based on their, that's coach's knowledge and their experience, and it might be based on some research they've made. But as well, what I'd really like is a coach, and, and this is maybe where if you've got assistant coaches, to provide sustained observation. And coaching observation, you know, can be questionable in terms of accuracy, because when you're doing a session, you've got so much going on. You're thinking about the next activity or the drills or, or, or the academy manager who's walking past or, or the assistant coach who said something last week or whatever. So your observation's not, you know, it, it's not uh, always uh, as accurate as it could be. So I would really encourage sustained observation, purposeful observation. So if you've got two assistant coaches, I would be saying, right, the next three sessions, I want you to watch A, B, and C player 
and I want you to focus on them. Don't worry about the next activity. I've got that. Don't worry about the strikers. I've got that. You're focusing on the 3Ds and let's really observe what are they working on? What are they doing? Why are they doing it? And do that sustain. And if, if you're in a situation in an academy where you've got video as well, there's opportunities there. So you could maybe draw on your performance analyst, for instance, to do that observation. And that then would give you a really good basis of what some of these players might need. But it's only an inferred need. It's only what you think they might need by observing. Yeah. And it might well be true. And it might be what they need because you've got a lot of experience and you've read some research and you might have been in their shoes before in that position. So you kind of have an idea. Okay. But I think you can then go one step better than this which is where we move from inferred needs to expressed needs. And that's where you actually ask them, how are you doing? And they'll tell you they're fine. And then you go, no, how are you really doing? And you open up a safe space. Yeah. And that can be really difficult if you're the head coach, because they might not want to admit vulnerability to you. We know the coach from, again, Chris Cushion's work around power, for instance, the coach is really powerful. Yeah. So maybe an assistant coach is a better person to have that conversation with them because yeah. the assistant coach isn't going to drop them at the weekend, for instance, you know. Um, but we need to open up that dialogue so that they can tell you that actually this is how I feel when the ball comes to my weaker side or this is how I feel when I'm playing against X who's the best player in the squad and he's in training and I'm struggling against them. So unless we can open up their vulnerabilities and they can open up what they're struggling with and again, maybe the performance analyst, maybe the sports psych or the assistant coach is the person to have that. But that for me would give you a really good basis to go right. My sessions are going to be based around some of what research tells me. They're going to be based around some of my own experiences and insights because I've reflected on my practice and I value that professional knowledge. But they're also going to be based on what we infer through observation. And they're also going to be based on what the players are telling us. Um, and could you imagine how powerful that would be if a player opened up to you and said, I'm struggling with this part of the game. And then maybe six, seven days later, you put on a session which includes a part of that. And they go, wow. This person's listened to me, they've observed, I've confided in them, and then they've acted to help. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a pretty powerful basis for a great coach-athlete relationship. You're opening up some trust there and some dialogue. Now, of course, it could also go wrong if you don't act. The player comes in and they open up and they say, this is what I'm struggling with, and you don't do anything with it. Yeah. Well, why would, I, why, you know, why would I open up again? You yeah. know? This is where you've got a... It works. It's, it's, a, it's a human factor. Forget forget coaching and football. I think I worked in a place in the past just for experience where I presented a piece of work which was then used and someone else took the credit for it and then did that again at another club. And I remember being sat down and the hierarchy went, oh, this is a great piece of work to so-and-so. And, -so. and the, the person actually turned around and went, no, no, stop you there. Lewis created this. And then, like the ad, I call it ad value. So, in terms of if you ask players for their opinion and they don't see that it's been put into practice or whatever, or you're not conscious of doing that, it's, there's no point in doing it. And, like, when, when you do ad value, that's when you get that bit of because I'm a very kind of conscious and I'd say I'm pretty observant and pick up on things really well. So, 
if someone was to take all those ideas off me and then not put them in place, I'd be like, well, that was that was a waste of time. I think that's just a, it's going more down like for me the the human the human factor kind of kind of bit. Um, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And and dialogue is something that keeps coming up in my research. So I did some you know interviews with uh, athletics coaches, and and these were very successful. So you know they these all had athletes at European Championships and Olympic Games. And, um, you know, they talked about, like, coffee shop conversations. Yeah. Now, it's easier in athletics because you're not going to squat at 25, yeah? It, 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 there might be a squat of maybe six or seven and, and, and one coach. But the coach would have those coffee shop conversations. Or um, And recently I heard an example of a football coach who, you know, would sit, sit next to players on the bus and would just have that conversation and that dialogue um, and I think that dialogue, I mean, the, the keys in the word, it, it's dialogue. It's not monologue. So it's not one way, it's two way. Yeah. Um, so if the, if, the, if the athlete is giving you all these thoughts and ideas and areas that we think we need to improve, but you're not giving anything back, well, that's not a relationship. You know, that's just you benefiting. What are you giving back to the athlete? Yeah. And vice versa, you know, if a coach is coming up and planning great sessions and observing and based on research, well, actually the athletes need, to be able to contribute as well so they need to be hold, uh, hold themselves to account so if an athlete says i'm struggling with this and you put on a session well i think you're within your rights to say right look this is based on your needs this is based on what you told i'm expecting great effort here today you know so it is a dialogue it goes both ways and both people have to be accountable and i think your point there about you know like one person given to that relationship but not getting it back so yeah. you've given in great ideas, but you've not got anything back. And you go, right, great, no problem. I'm out because I don't trust you now anymore. Um, so I, I think that's a, you know, a really good example of where we need to, where it does need to be both people giving and both people receiving. Otherwise, it's, it, it's not a relationship. Otherwise, it's one person benefiting and controlling the other person. Yeah, and I think there's another bit around there about prioritizing. So... I think I gave this example on one of the other episodes where I think I went through a phase as a young coach where it was, I felt like everything had to, because I'm very probably kind of logical and organised in terms of like I, I want my session set up an hour before training, all the mannequins set out perfect, cones, biz balls. I'm still like that. I I got a bit of a shock to the system. I worked at Burnley College for a little bit doing some coaching and a guy who I'm really close with now was the total opposite in terms of he'd be there as the players arrived, he'd be putting cones down while he's starting. But then as the season went on, and I didn't really kind of get on with this person to start with, because I was like, well, I'm doing this. But then, but then as the season went on, I realised that that group of players that he had had absolute total buy-in with that person. Because yes, that stuff was maybe not his, his strength, but he'd be the one going into classrooms, seeing if players were all right. He'd be chatting to him in the canteen, all that. Whereas I'd be sat behind the laptop after the session, reviewing my session. But then thinking, well, that's not actually that important. And I learned a lot of that human kind of factor from him. But then obviously by getting to know him, I was like, he's got kids, so he's dropping his kids off at school. So he's getting to work for nine o'clock and putting his corns out. Everyone's got circumstances behind it as well. And I was probably a bit judgmental in the start, but like I said, that big, 
I I seen this guy still works at Burnley College now, and and lads that played from ten years ago will still come and see him at Burnley College, which tells you about the relationship at the end of the day. Yeah, and I'm not sure this is something that we do very well in Coach Ed. You know, like if we think about football, for instance, we think um, four corner model, for instance, and and we think tech tack, and we think physical, and we think psychological. Yeah. I'm not we I'm not sure we've moved but much beyond saying the social is important. So I think we say that in coach yeah. ed, oh it's really important to have a coach athlete relationship. I'm not sure we're giving people tools necessarily in how to have a great coach athlete relationship. You know, those corridor conversations or or giving them models or or theories or research on how that that can be done. Um I think that's for several reasons, but I think one of the reasons is um, when when I spoke to these um, athletics coaches, for instance, they kept telling me about these coffee shop conversations, these conversations on planes and buses, but I kept asking them questions about what was happening on the track, and it took me ages to realize that the reason why that I was seeing coaching as only what happened on the track or what happened on a court or a pitch, but they were seeing coaching as what happened all week long. Yeah. So you were turning up and thinking, right, this guy's not early. His mannequins aren't set up. He's not a great coach. What you were probably missing is all the the conversations and classrooms after that happened behind the scenes, away from the field of play where he's still being a coach yeah, and one of the athletics uh, uh, coaches uh, brought it home to me. You know, she was saying that um, she gives her players training diaries, and and, and you know, athletics um, athletes are great for monitoring their training diaries because they'll do sets and reps and times, and they'll they'll even recruit record food. And on on a Sunday night, she would go through those diaries and read the diaries of the players for a week, get to know the players, and that would inform her planning. Yeah. Now she'd have a she'd have a plan in place because athletics coaches, you know, they're working four years back. So yeah. they've got plans, you know, but she would tweak the plans to just meet the needs, depending on what she read in the diaries that week. And nobody ever saw that because it happened at seven o'clock on a Sunday and the kids are getting ready for bed or getting ready for school. She would have a look through these diaries and then go and tweak her plans. And, it, and she, and I just think it's behind the scenes. It's hidden. But it's that kind of almost act of, I want to know what's going on and I want to do something to help them. So it's one thing getting the diary and we collect so much data on players. How much do we act upon is an interesting thing, uh, you know, for us to consider. Um, I think I feel like we always, again, going from experience, there's quite a lot of stuff around well-being and um, like you said, training diaries at the minute we only ever really seem to act on if it's a negative. So this player's had bad sleep, let's work with it. This this individual has um, had a tough week. Whereas on the flip side, if someone's put in, they've had a really good week, we almost leave. And I feel like, and again, tell me if I'm wrong here, I don't know what the research looks like, but if someone's in a, a green zone in terms of mental health, like feels really good, physically feels really good, is that not a great opportunity? Or do you know what we'll do more with this this athlete today? So this is where I think um, I think 
people get confused a little bit about my research then because my research really argues for this needs-based caring relationship where we look and say right what do the players needs and let's act upon that and that might be somebody you know needing a bit of extra work on a technical aspect based on that observation or it might be somebody opening up a dialogue on a bus saying listen i'm really struggling with this yeah. I know we've been working on it and I've been doing my bit, but I just can't. So great. Come to the performance analyst. Let's spend an hour with them. So it's this needs-based caring relationship. But I think whenever I use the word care, everybody thinks I mean nice yeah. and easy. And actually, you know what? There's times, depending on the situation, where I'm going to care by giving you a tougher session because that's what you need. So you're hitting all your markers you know, I'm observing you in the sessions and you're flying. Well, actually, is this an opportunity to now put in some extra challenge? You know, is this an opportunity to uh, stretch you? Now, I'd like to do that based on a relationship where I can turn around and say, you know, you know, Lewis, we think you're doing really well. We've looked at you for these last three weeks. We think you're ready for a challenge. How do you feel about that? Are you willing to embrace that is this is how we're going to challenge you are you going to commit to that is that not enough do you want us to tweak it is that too much so i'd love that to be based on a dialogue a two-way genuine dialogue but care can be making things harder for somebody because that's how they will adapt yeah it's not always making things easier sometimes it might be but sometimes it won't it won't be and the other thing you've got me thinking about and this does get a bit abstract lewis so I might need you to give me a real concrete example again. <laughs> the other thing you've got me thinking about is, is the past, present, and the future. So, yeah, I hope, I hope you sat down and with me on this now. Because I, when we think about coaching, we often talk about reflecting on the past. And we often talk about planning to the future. And one of the things that, again, in, in some of my research that we've looked at is actually the past, present, and the future are kind of always happening at the same time. So just bear with me on this. When somebody's got green lights from all their markers, well, that's based on what they've done previously. So when we sit down with them, maybe in an individual action planning meeting, the past is with us. We've got that data there. It's not gone. It's not forgotten about. It's there alongside us. And we're going like, we can see you've hit green light, green light, green light. But the future also needs to be there with us. We also need to be thinking about what's coming down the road. So do we need to prepare you for something in six months' time, something in 12 months' time? Do we need to put you out of position for the next month to help you to be better in 24 months' time, for instance? So we all, we all have to have an eye on the future and we have to be informed by the past and we have to keep both of them in our mind as we do that meeting at the time. Whereas sometimes we can look at the past and go, right, you've hit all your green lights, therefore we're going to make it harder. Well, hang on, what's he, what else is coming up for the next few weeks? And sometimes there might not be anything coming up for the next few weeks, in which case it's right to make it harder. But we just need to have that one eye on what's coming as well as what's been. Um, and I, I sometimes think coaches can either be one or the other. Yeah. So, you know, you lose on a Saturday and that informs your planning for the week. Or you've got a big game coming up this Saturday and that informs your planning. Whereas actually we've got to juggle both. We've got to juggle what's been and what's coming at the same time. I don't know if that's too abstract or if that's... No, it's, it's bang on because again, you like... 
again, the, the area I've worked at research is like winning development, but I'm just thinking the the structuring culture in terms of like a, a syllabus and a plan very much lends itself to like a school structure in terms of every 12 weeks you get a review, blah, blah, blah. And again, going back to the human factor, so say you've got 25 players in your squad and every 12 weeks you've got to write 25 reviews. There's not one person listening to this that goes, I sit down and write all 25 reviews in one night with unbelievable detail. You get four or five in and it's it's monotonous. You write reviews and again, it's it's a piece of paper that goes on a shelf that we look at every 12 weeks. And like I said, it's bringing that to life. And something I've played around with recently and at past clubs is trying to change the syllabus so you, you're reviewing two or three players a week. So then you almost build your syllabus around that two or three players for a week. And you have like breaks in the season where, yes, you need a week where it's like catch up or it's a break. But if you find yourself doing that, you feel like you're giving more attention to players. So when you when you sit down in a meeting with your MDT staff around the future planning for player A and player B, right, I know off the back of, we did one last week where we talked about two players. One's a real S&C kind of red flag in terms of they need loads of gym stuff. So that was our one one target. And in eight weeks, it might change something else. But in eight weeks, it might be something different. Whereas when we sit down and talk about 25 players off the bat, you've lost you've lost the group. And again, it's I think these are little things we can look at. I'm really interested in getting into some individual sports in the next couple of years and looking at, like you said, about cyclists and athletes and how they, they plan. Because like you said, they plan they plan for the future. And me and you have sat down and had this this conversation in the past where, like, again, we, we sound like a battering football a little bit. But if you sign a kid at nine years old, if you've done everything right, that kid should be with you for a long time in terms of how you've recruited. You know that you've got a plan in place. But again, I think there's too many things outside of football in terms of change over staff. There's quite a lot of that at the minute. And like the revolving door of football that you never get something that's like bang in place. There's only probably a handful of clubs in the country that I've seen and been privy to where you go, they're not bad at this. They're not bad. But but yeah, I feel like it's something I've played around with in the past of like, let's contract a couple of players a week. You've still got your overall syllabus, like you said, that ticks the box for your academy manager. But you're dipping in with these two or three players, you're getting real kind of focus. And then in eight weeks or six weeks, we can review that again. And if it's stepped on, we, we then almost upgrade it again. But you're doing that every week with every every couple of players. And I feel like it's something that's really helped staff. So that brings, um, I'm so glad you've said that because it brings me back to that idea of sustained attention. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things that I, I forgot to say here, and the listeners might be thinking, oh, you know, because I've said, oh, you just need sustained attention as if that's an easy thing to do. And it's not an easy yeah. thing to do. It's tiring. It's hard work. You've got a million other one projects. So it's actually labor. It's caring labor is to watch somebody carefully for three weeks and make notes and think and empathize about what are they going through? What do they need? That's that's tough labor. Now, for one person to do that for 25 players, that's a lot of labour. And you get burnt out, you know, you're exhausted. Also, sorry, sorry to cut in, but it takes away the perception thing as well. So, I'm sorry. You, can quite, you can quite easily say, like, you want a player to work on something. 
they've been working on it for three or four weeks and they're improving, improving, improving. And then they make the mistake they were making five weeks ago in that area. One person can see that and suddenly their perception is like, oh, she's still not got better at it or he's still not got better at it. And you disregard the 25 times they've done it well. And this is a big thing of me. I think being an assistant coach in a past job was like, that really opened my eyes in terms you can get bogged down in like uh, your bias. Like that's, okay. that someone's, that's re- someone's really good at that. Someone's not so good at that. But then you stick to that opinion. Yeah, because it's a fleeting glance. You're going through the session. You're, you're, you're managing everything. You're managing the complexity. And then out of the corner, right, you see that person make that mistake. And you've missed a load of other things that they yeah. made. And we've got the data as well that shows that coaches are not great of recalling what happens in sessions. Yeah. So this is where we've got to draw on maybe. And this is where I think it's too much labor maybe for one person. Yeah. And that's why I keep hinting here that maybe we've got to draw on the performance analysts here a little bit. Or maybe we've got to draw on assistant coaches here. Um, I'd even like to come back to talk about club welfare in a second, Lewis, if you don't mind. Yeah. Because I think it's too much labor for one person to say, right, I'm research informed, I'm implementing the syllabus, I've got my own coaching philosophy which matches the club's philosophy, I'm implementing, and I'm needs based by watching all 25 people. Thinking, wow, how can you do all of that? So we've got to start, you know, delving out and sharing this labor and saying, actually, there's a head coach and two assistants here. Uh, I want you watching those three, you watching those three, and you watching those three. And you'll write the individual action plan and the review for the person. You know, we might, we'll, ha- we'll have a meeting as a group, but you'll come with the data for that. So we've got to start managing those uh, resources as best we can, uh, because otherwise we can't get to know these players and we can't get to understand their needs and, and see their progress as well. To the point that we can then inform what they're going to do. So it's, it's not only about understanding what they've done, it's to the point where we can inform what they're going to be doing because that past and present and future it comes into it as well. Um, yeah, I couldn't agree more. What do you think about the idea of instead of the head coach doing three every few weeks that you, you, you um, delegate it out? Is, do you think that would work? That's would that be a non-runner in academy football? So, for example, like recently we spoke about a player who has a biggest need is S&C, like she needs something in terms of gym, so my strength and conditioning coach has done that player's review. I know there's no need for me, to, again, she's still going to get stuff out of the session and well, whatever, but that eight weeks have gone, because I'm big on I read a book called Habit, Charles Duhigg, I don't know if you've ever read it and it opened my eyes massively, there's a lot of chapters on it around kind of it starts with a chapter around kind of dementia and how people with dementia can still find the way home but can't remember what happened like five minutes ago and little things like that. But there's a part in it where it talks about how they change their habits in the workplace and it goes off into another industry and talks about some guy came in as a CEO of a company that was the bottom of everything, like in terms of um, financing, everything. And he basically goes, right, I need to find the one thing that we can nail, which will make everything else fall into place. And the one thing he was, so he he wanted to lower the amount of sick days from people over the case of a year. So he improved the health and safety and the cleanliness of the, the factory. And by doing that, 
sick days dropped, more people worked, more people more productive, and then suddenly you got so now I'm I'm big on like we'll sit in meetings now and like I'll let the staff talk about the player and I'll sit and listen. Because I know my opinion of the player. We'll sit and listen, I'll take little notes down, and then we'll get to the end of the meeting and I'll think, right, off everything you've said, player X needs the biggest sort so they're not fit enough, they're not strong enough, they're not this, they're not this. But from what you said, they need this one thing. Bang, right, that's all we're going to concentrate on. Because I remember as a player myself, if you sit down and your coach goes, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. That, that's demoralising for anyone. So it's how do we go, right, we're going we're gonna to home in on one thing. It's been okay. And that, but then it's also then the, the management of staff and the people around to go, that's what that player's working on. Don't mention anything else. And that's where the the kind of I've learned a little bit more to be more brutal at times when I need to be to go, we're sticking to the plan here. So I'm with you on sticking to the plan because it's a plan based on observed needs. Yeah. Yeah. I'd I'd even be more convinced if the player had also said, I need work on that. Yeah, I think I think there is some players that are at that. So, like, we, we obviously have, like, a, basically a conveyor belt of players in terms of you get new players come in and old players leave. The ones that have been with you for a bit longer, that becomes a conversation where I've even thought this year, some of the reviews this year, rather than, like I said, do we have one one block of reviews is player-led, one block's coach-led, that kind of... And, like, in a previous job, we used to have the players present back to us, which was unbelievable but it took up three days of training because of the time commitments of like every player presented for 45 minutes, which was amazing. And you don't want to cut their time because some of the stuff that come out of it, but so it's then the, the time management thing comes into it as well. I think at times it's good to do. At times you've got to go, now we're just going with this. And I think that's the case across anywhere logistically. But yeah, I feel like there's been, don't get me wrong, there's still been a little bit of buy in terms of, speak to players, what do you think you need to work on? Um, and if you I give your example... The season goes on. Yeah, sorry, if you give your example from S&C, like, S&C can often be a place where a player will say something in between sets of reps. Yeah. And the S&C coach isn't dropping them or isn't deciding if they get a contract or not. So, again, they're more likely to say that to the S&C. Mm. Um, so, yeah. and then, you know, so at least there's an expressed need or uh, of some form. Um, the other thing I, I really liked about that is this idea of, um, of a learning mechanism. So what you've got there is you've got, look, we're going to work on this player's needs for the next eight weeks. Um, and that eight week window, it gives you a time to come back and then think, right, has it worked? Yeah. You know, so this idea that care is an ongoing relationship. So if we think they need some SNC and we put that act upon that with them and they've inputted in some form through that and committed to it, great. Have we got the learning mechanism in four, six, eight weeks later to where we revisit that? And again, if you talk about strengthening a coach-athlete relationship, if a player thinks, hang on a minute, I need some SNC and they've done it. They've all bought into it, not just the S&C, but the assistant coach is asking me about it in the corridor the other day, yeah. you know? 
yeah. and the head coach had a quick word on the bus the other day about how's that gym work going. Uh, and now, eight weeks later, we've made a bit of progress, but they're now sitting down to think, how can we make it even better? Coach Hathlet relationship is really flourishing there um, because that yeah. goes back to that idea of it's, they're getting something from it. Now, the player has to give something too. They've got to turn up on time. They've got to commit yeah. to those SNC. So it's got to go both ways. So well, you have a learning mechanism to keep the relationship flourishing over time. Yeah. And again, it's a trial and everything which we're, like, we're looking at. And again, it, I, straight away, I think you get more buying from, from staff and players just to, in terms of that. But it's an opportunity also for the member staff. So when we go back to this, these two players in eight weeks' time, It'd be brilliant to say the SNC coach's responsibility has been player, player X. Present what you've tried with player X. So the first two or three weeks, I tried to do this in the gym. Didn't work. That's what I want to see. I want to see the workings and people's find out. Not, I don't want someone to come in and go, yeah, player X was getting level 16 on the bleat test, now they're getting level 17. Like, how did you do it? Did they have yeah. It? So that's yeah. that learning mechanism. Yeah. So the next time we have a player in a similar position, we, we, we can learn from that as well. The problem that I can see happening here uh, is, is, and before I get into the problem, sorry, there's one other great thing I like about that. The great thing why I like about that is you're moving from having a coach-athlete relationship, which is caring, to having almost a caring climate yeah. where everybody around that player is now, including the player, is focused on meeting their needs. So that might be the SNC, it might be medical, it might be sports psych. So we're all focusing on that needs. And again, that's maybe more likely in individual sports or basketball where there's 10, 12 players, not 25, okay? But, so there is a resource. But that idea that we have, that it's not just one off caring relationship, that it's a culture around the club where we're focused on that needs. I think that's a more realistic and better way than just having one caring coach and saying, here's 25 people, get to know them and meet their needs. Yeah. Because that takes us back to it's too much labor for one coach to do everything. Yeah. Um, can I go into the challenges that I foresee yeah. coming then? Well, so the first one I, I foresee coming is the micropolitics. So yeah. that works great, but the player comes in and the bleep test hasn't gone well. Does the relationship between the SNC and the head coach and the academy manager, is that at a point now where the SNC comes in and goes, nothing to do with me, it was all down to player X or it was all, all down to the tech-tac coach who had them out on the pitch for too long or, 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 or the medical team and he was injured because the medical team. Are we in a micro-political world where those departments have relationships that they trust each other in there? Yeah. Or are they going to have to put on a front and protect themselves? So, so that's and a that, challenge that, I could that, see that's happening. Then, that's then the lead coach or the academy manager's job around, obviously. What does that look like in terms of that open environment between staff? And again, I've been in good ones, I've been in bad ones, I've been in different ones where that can, like I said, you have them more honest conversations, the more informal it kind of becomes at times between people, which is really good. Uh, and that's another thing consciously, which now in my role, but like I'm, trying to, I'm trying to build. And like I said, going back to the, 
the example of when I was a young coach, sat behind a laptop, plan, do, review everything on my own, I probably wouldn't have been good at building a, a team as such. Whereas like looking at my friend now who who was the other way to me and the buying, I think that's that's really interesting. Because again, like staff reviews I do, like I've done I've done a staff review today, I've done it in a coffee shop rather than in the office. Just recognising when to go out for breakfast with someone and go, I want to get into some real deep like parts here. Um which yeah, that's because again, like look at what you can look at our our relationship flourished since university, because that was a an institutional environment where you're the teacher and the learner. Whereas now it's we catch up and we throw ideas around. Because yeah, even though it was a good relationship at university, there's still the you're the in command kind of thing, and it's trying to take that away. But then also, again, there's quite a lot of reading and stuff out there around how much do you give to your staff and then how much do you go I still think there's times where I've got to almost like put my foot down and go no I'm doing this because again if it's always because I had a good chat with like an FA tutor about this other week like you can have all the ideas in the world and everyone's bringing their stuff to the table but then you never have a clarity because at some point someone's got to go well we're doing this we're doing it this way <laughs> we've got to make a decision um, and like I said staff are in different places in their lives, different places in their careers. And that's that's really interesting. It's something I've I want to do more of now, whereas I've never really had to manage staff all the time. And then again, in the world we're in, you don't always get to go and choose your staff. So it's how do you how do you get the ones on side that you have your preconceived judgments of well, I don't really relate well to that character. Well, maybe I've got to change a little bit. Yeah. And and again, this is maybe why we need to say to coaches that, look, this is really difficult because we've now just said, follow your syllabus, be research informed, observe your players so well, involve them in conversations. And now we've said to them, and then bring your team together. But in any given team, now this isn't, you know, there might be two people there in their retirement. So, you know, they've got one eye on out the door. You've got two people who've just started who don't know what they're doing. You've got two people who fell out at a Christmas party two years ago and, and they don't know, you know, yeah. they don't work. So how do you then bring that team together and manage that team so that you're focusing on the needs of players? Like, it's, that's why, what I mean by complex. It's really difficult for a coach to manage all those social relationships. And as I said, I'm not sure in coach education, in formal coach education, I'm not sure we do a great job of giving people ideas. There are ideas out there, but they, they haven't really been embedded into that social corner because the social isn't just the player and the coach. It's the player, the parent, it's the, the player and the assistant coach, the player and the medical team and, and, and the coach and the medical team. So I think we've got to really look at, at how do we help people navigate those um, micro politics um, because they'll undercut the care. If the medical team isn't working with the SNC, the player is not going to get the care that they need. If the coaches are, are, are worried about their own jobs, protecting their own environment, and protecting their own position, well, they're not going to open up to a head coach and say, look, I've been working with so-and-so. He's really struggling. I'm really struggling with new ideas. Do you have any new ideas? An assistant coach isn't going to open up like that yeah. and ask for that help. 
if there's not some sort of security, safety, openness there. Uh, if it's micro-political, um, everybody for themselves, then you're not going to get that player care. You might still implement the syllabus, by the way, but you won't have the tweaks in it needed to help people flourish as individuals. Um, I don't know if you'd agree with that. Yeah, and like just to kind of play around it up a bit, going back to you've mentioned there, but you've mentioned earlier around we talk tech tech and physical, then psych socials. Like we, we like I said, we talk about there's no answers there. From your kind of understanding and your research, Colin, where where are we up to with that in terms of kind of social interventions when coaching sport? Yeah, it's a really good question, Lewis, because there is stuff. Some people have done stuff. So Sophia Jarrett, a psychologist, has done stuff on coach-athlete relationship. She's got an online course that I think you can sign up for, which helps a little bit. But it tends to focus on the coach and the athlete, not necessarily the relationships around that. Yeah. There is research by people like Paul Potrack and Robin Jones who've looked at the micropolitics so how do coaches cope with the, poli uh, the politics? And some of that's in football as well. Um, and again, you know, uh, people out there might think, well, how do I get a hold of it? Just go on Google Scholar, type in Paul Potrack, Robin Jones, and you'll find articles. Um, and if you can't get access to it, email one of the authors. And the academics love the idea that somebody's reading their stuff, so they send it out. So just email the authors. But even still, I, I think we need to take another step and go, right, how do we build this into a, a UEFA B course, for instance? Um, how, do, how do we get more uh, intervention and education on this work? We've got a, a PhD student, Andy Newlands, who's, a, again, a football guy. Uh, um, and Andy's looking at that in his PhD. So we're a few years away from that. Um, but hopefully we'll start moving on to kind of moving beyond saying relationships are important and actually giving people ideas and tools of the how to do that. Yeah. In the meantime, there's probably a lot of coaches out there who are doing this really well. So a guy that comes to my mind is uh, Alan Keane, who's um, a GB basketball coach. And he's just done a couple of things that I've seen him do that's worked really well. Um, so the first thing he does is uh, that uh, that resonated with me was he just has has had a flip chart in his office and I saw it one day and asked him about it and he's basically got a list of everybody's names up there and he just ticks off who he's spoken to and he it's yeah. really simple but he's like Cullum sometimes I get to the end of the week and somebody's been spoken to and I've had chats with them seven times and somebody else I've not spoken to them all week one to one. So just something as simple as that. And then what he's done is he's developed a session plan template. Um, and he's just put connections at the start of the session plan template. Who is he going to have a connection with at training and how? And that reminded me of your idea of which three am I focused on? on. And he literally has three, but he has it on a session template. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm connecting with, with, with Katie today. Why am I connecting with Katie? Well, you know what? Um, you know, she's having trouble at school. I'm just going to connect with her for two minutes before the session. Or I'm connecting with Joe today because Joe, Joe's done really well the last week and I just want to let him know that it's recognized. And it might only be 30 seconds, but having it on the session plan template makes it happen. Um, 
and I, um, so and then voice notes. You know, he uses voice notes an awful lot. He'll send players clips and say, "Look, can you send me a thirty-second voice note of what you think about this?" And I'll send you one back. Uh, and voice notes then have the tone of of the coach yeah. rather than sending a text or you know. Um, so you know, maybe there's a game on a Saturday, and he'll send clips on a Monday and go, you know. Yeah look at what you did here. Wasn't that fantastic? And as a player, receiving that onto your phone, you know, that's a nice real connection. I've worked on some, this might be your SNC. You've worked on it for eight weeks. The head coach might not have been very close to that. It might've been the SNC. It might've been the assistant coach, but the head coach sends a voice note on week nine. I've just seen your scores. They're fantastic. Well done. Great effort. Now let's go again for the next eight weeks. Boom. It's just that affirmation. So, there are kind of practical strategies that I've seen coaches use. And I don't think from a research perspective, we've really got models into coach ed. I think we do have them, but we need to bring the theory and the practice together and embed it in coach ed. And that's, you know, as I said, um, an area for us to work on. And Andy's doing some of that work. So hopefully we'll come back in a few years and get him on uh, to explain. Definitely. No, brilliant. Colin, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Top man. No problem. Happy to chat. Um, yeah. I mean, you, you take your concrete examples that you've helped me the whole way through. So I'll be using them definitely in my teaching at John Moore's. Brilliant. Cheers, mate.